1897, God, that was a long time ago, way long time ago, but in 1897, these two nerds, Bernard, Bernard, <laughs> that actually makes sense. He's a nerd, but his name was Bernard. So we're going to call him Bernard. Bernard Grenfell and Arthur Hunt published a book called, quote, New Classical Fragments and Other Greek and Latin Papyri. Now you know why I called him Bernard instead of Bernard. But anyways, what this book does is it studies, translates, and interprets ancient documents written on papyrus. Actually, papyri is plural of papyrus. It doesn't matter. Who cares? So papyrus, just so you know, is like paper of the ancient Egyptian world. They use um, like this water plant. They take fibers from the water plant, and they weave it, and they make papyrus, and plural is papyri. So what these two dudes did is they got 146 different papyri that had been written on. It had been used as paper. Most of it was written in Greek. Some was in Latin. And all of them were found in and around ancient Egypt. And all of them were written in the time frame between 300 BC and the 8th century AD. Now, I know this sounds boring, but I want you to stay with me. Because what Bernard and Arthur did proved, in my opinion, to be phenomenal. Hello, friends. Welcome to How to Be 40, my podcast that attempts to delineate what it means to transition from juvenile thinking and behavior to genuine maturity. This is an attempt. Doesn't mean I've mastered anything. Jake, my good friend Jake Pitchback. Love you, Jake. So let's talk about these nerds. I like these nerds. Among these 146 pieces that they studied, I want to make a very clear point. All of these pieces were varied in the sense of they weren't trying to go out and prove something. They just assembled all these pieces and they found various things. They found um, copies of Iliad by Homer. You've heard of Homer's Iliad. It's like an ancient Greek poem. They found documents detailing the sale of land and animals. They found petitions. They found basic letters between two dudes, you know. They found various types of contracts and more. They even found one that was like a, a sale of a sycamore tree from one dude to another, right? So anything that they could get their hands on from that time period and that place, they wanted to pull together and study. But However, it's a few customs receipts from the third century that I want to focus on. And like I said, this sounds nerdy. But just bear with me. This is like a baseball game that's really slow, but when you get to the 8th and ninth inning, it gets exciting, but it's only exciting because of what you had to endure at the front half. So just bear with me. We're going to get to some really cool stuff. You just got to stay with me here. So when we look at the book, New Classical Fragments and Other Greek and Latin Papyri, they have what are called numbers, which are basically chapters. But if you go to chapter 50, or number 50, as they would call it, I want to read to you a sentence from this book. Quote, The 14 papyri here grouped together are receipts for various taxes paid 
by persons transporting goods on baggage animals from the Fayum to Memphis and vice versa across the desert road, end quote. Now listen, let me break that down. There's dudes traveling from the city of Fayum to Memphis, not Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis is what Cairo used to be called. So Cairo is the capital of Egypt. It used to be called Memphis. And about 62 miles south of modern-day Cairo, there was an ancient city of Fayum. So just like if you go to Mexico or Canada, um, or if you're in Germany, I guess, if you have to go somewhere else, because I know I have German listeners. Forgive me, I don't, I don't know the subtleties about when and how you travel. But over here, we have to go through what are called customs, which is that if you're bringing something back, if you're doing trade of some sort, you have to document, you have to show proof that you've paid this or that tax and so forth. So that's what's happening. These people are using what are called baggage animals. That just means like, just think of them as like they're hauling animals. They're, they're meant to haul goods uh, between Fayum and Memphis. I told you this was going to sound nerdy, but just bear with me. The authors are taking these documents and they're trying to understand each word in the various receipts. They basically just want to recreate what was happening, why it was happening, who was doing what and where and all that kind of good stuff. Like I said, Bernard Grenfell. But can you hear the rooster in the background? God, we have a rooster and he crows all day. I do not know why. Why? Uh, He's like the guy in the gym who just has his shirt off the entire time. Just always flexing on folks for no reason. Anyways, okay, so some of you who know me well are going to see the hypocrisy in my comment, but that's okay. These authors, they're trying to understand the various aspects. They're trying to recreate what had happened on these customs receipts. I want to read to you something that they wrote further in that book, again, chapter 50. Quote, whether it was paid in money or in kind, or there is nothing to show, comma, Tetelestai, meaning simply, has paid the tax. But judging by the miscellaneous and perishable character of the produce, it was probably paid in money, end quote. Let me break that down. So they're trying to figure out how a specific tax was paid. Was it paid in kind, meaning did they trade something for it? Like say, hey, you owe a tax. You're, uh, give me, let me give you an example. So let's say I'm hauling corn on a camel. I'm, I'm, let's say I'm hauling 300 pounds of corn on a camel. And the dude at customs says, hey, man, you can't go to Memphis, hashtag Cairo, until you give me a certain tax. And I say, hey, man, I can give you cash or I'll give you some of this corn. If I give him the corn, some of the corn, that's a payment in kind. Or if I just pay it in cash, then, then it's cash. So that's what these dudes, these Bernards, are trying to figure out. How did this dude pay this tax? And by, oh, by the way, in this specific example, they were hauling wheat on, a, on two camels in this specific instance. What I want to point out is the word tetelestai. It's, it's just one big word, theta, epsilon, theta, epsilon, blah, blah, blah. On some of the receipts, they had the abbreviation uh, tete, which just like uh, if we were going to abbreviate the month of November, we might put N-O-V, period. So on some of the receipts, tetelestai was spelled out, and some it was tete. But in either case... What it meant is that the tax had been paid. Now, again, these authors don't know if it was paid with cash or if it was paid in kind, but the word tetelestai was used to denote that the tax has been paid, and not only that, it had been paid in full. So the balance was zero, and that was denoted 
by the fact that they had written the word tetelestai on the tax receipt. We're getting into the seventh inning. Check this out. There's another document from around that same time written 300-ish A.D., 400-ish A.D., that uses the exact same Greek word. The Codex Sinaiticus. Some of you may know that. It is also called the Sinai Bible. It's an ancient, handwritten copy of the entire Christian Bible in Greek. Now, you need to understand something. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, blah, blah, blah. Those dudes, they probably spoke Greek, but their primary language was not Greek. It was, well, in Jesus' case, it was a, a, um, a Galilean form of Aramaic, right? So Aramaic. They also probably spoke a significant amount of Hebrew. But Greek was most likely not near their first language proficiency. Not Greek. Greek was not their primary language. So the Codex Sinaiticus uses that exact same word, but I need to make sure you understand that was not the words used primarily by Jesus and all his homies. Let me read you John 19, 28 through 30. Now, this is modern-day English Standard Version, I believe. I think it was English Standard Version. Quote, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been already finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, says, I thirst. There lay a vessel full of vinegar. Having therefore put a sponge full of vinegar on a hyssop, they put it to his mouth. By the way, if you haven't caught on, this is Jesus uh, on the cross, and he's near death, by the way. Back to it. When therefore he had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And having bowed his head, he gave up his spirit. I talked about that moment in December of 2020 in the episode called Torture. Let's dig into this. I want you to stay with me, guys. Digging into the eighth inning. Jesus, like I said, spoke a Galilean form of Aramaic. They were all probably very educated, at least ultimately they were, later in their lives. So they spoke other languages to some degree. But Aramaic, primary language. He did not, when he was on the cross, dying, he did not speak Greek. That'd be like me on my deathbed trying to spit out words in German. I know like four words in German. Why would I try? I would speak English, my primary language. But wait, if we get... The words, it is finished. Where did that come from? The Sinai Bible uses the word tetelestai, and we find that it is translated into it is finished. (laughs) Whatever Jesus actually said, he didn't say the words, it is finished. What he said, although we don't know exactly, eluded to the fact that a debt had been paid. You see, tetelestai is the word used for it is finished. It is finished tetelestai. 
Same thing, according to interpreters and translators of the modern Bible. However, to Tetelestai doesn't mean it is finished, at least not directly. What it means is that the debt has been paid in full. If you understand the significance of this, you understand we're in the ninth inning of a very exciting baseball game. Jesus didn't say it is finished. He said something in Aramaic that could be translated to the debt is now paid. That's huge. Especially when you consider what debt. He wasn't paying a customs debt of corn to get to Memphis. He was paying your debt, my debt. Every time we have and will lie, cheat, steal, gossip, slander, hate, envy, belittle, curse. Every time we have and will be malicious, lustful, greedy, lazy, abhorrent, prideful, arrogant, just before Jesus gave up his spirit, he verified that in doing so, the tax, the ultimate tax, the tax of all taxes that you and I, our children, our parents, all of our forefathers, and all of our descendants has been paid under one condition. And that is the condition of belief. <laughs> it's not my words. That whosoever believes in him with a capital H. How many centuries have people studied, argued, debated over what it is finished means? When, at least for 120-something years, all we had to do is look at the text of Bernard and his compadre and put two and two together. That's huge. I think it's huge. And I think I'm right that I think it's huge. If you know me, that exact word, just as it's written in the Sinai Bible, is tattooed on my back, which is why I'm actually okay with those dudes who walk around in the gym with their shirt off, which I guess I should be okay with that annoying rooster he, who keeps crowing in the background. But either way, shout out to Bernard and his friends for gathering those ancient Greek papyri and interpreting them without having any clue that they would illuminate the truth of what Jesus really did on the cross which was to pay a tax for us, a tax that we could never pay ourselves, even with all the glory, the fame, the money, the prestige, the honor, the free time in the world, a tax that could only be paid with either our soul or his I'm Noah Dean. Thanks for listening.